Hello, bonjour and tante. I'm Paula Simons, and you're listening to a special summer series of Alberta Unbound, this one all about equalization. On October 18th, Albertans will be asked to vote on this question. Should Section 36.2 of the Constitution Act 1982, Parliament and the Government of Canada's commitment to the principle of making equalization payments, be removed from the Constitution? But what does that question mean exactly? And what would be the legal and political consequences of voting yes? In July, I convened a panel of five academics, all of them experts in equalization, to ask them to explain what equalization is, where it comes from, why we have it, and how we might make it feel fairer for Albertans. My guests were Dr. Trevor Toom, an economics professor from the University of Calgary, Dr. Mary Janigan, an historian and the author of the book The Art of Sharing, Dr. Jared Wesley, a political scientist from the University of Alberta, Eric Adams, the Vice Dean of the University of Alberta School of Law, and Ken Bosenkuhl, the J.W. McConnell Professor of Practice at the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University. We met via Zoom and took questions from an online audience via Facebook and YouTube. And despite those COVID restraints, we had a pretty lively discussion, and one I hope that will clear up a lot of the murk and confusion around equalization and around the Constitution. Here is the first part of our conversation. There is so much myth and so many misunderstandings around equalization, including a persistent belief somehow that the government of Alberta writes a big equalization check for Ottawa. So Trevor Toom, I want to start with you. You're an economist who studies fiscal federalism. Can you start us off by explaining in simple terms what equalization is and how it works? I can certainly try. And first, let me say thank you, uh, Senator Simons, for hosting us uh, today. Hopefully, this is one of many great conversations that Albertans will have uh, between now and October prior to the referendum on equalization. So to understand that program and how it works and what its objectives are and how it functions, we do need to keep in mind first that Canada is a very large and diverse country, both physically, of course, but also economically. And these regional economic inequalities are large. And and I guess for perspective, uh, the latest data shows average family incomes in Prince Edward Island, for example, are are just shy of $69,000 per year. Whereas in Alberta, uh, they're about $100,000 per year. So these large gaps in income are important because it means that in low-income regions, those governments have a harder time raising revenues to deliver core public services than governments of high-income provinces do. So what equalization tries to do is bridge those divides to ensure that Canadians in any region of the country have provincial governments with the fiscal capacity to enable them to deliver normal levels of public service at no more than normal rates of taxation. So how the program works in essence is we calculate how much a provincial government could raise if it had typical tax rates, if it had average tax rates. So we look at personal income tax, corporate income tax, consumption taxes, property taxes. We gather together almost all the sources of revenue for provincial governments and ask, what would you raise if you had normal average rates? 
So in Alberta, that's about 11,000, a little more than $11,000 per person. And in PEI, it's about $6,700 per person or so. So there's large differences in provincial government's ability to raise revenue. So then equalization says, well, if your ability to raise revenue is below average, then we're going to provide you a top-up payment to bring you up to an average level. And that's why PEI receives approximately $3,000 per person or so uh, in equalization, Manitoba to Quebec, about $1,500 per person, because that's the amount they are below the national average. And so the equalization tops them up to that average level to ensure they can deliver the health care and education at a normal level of quality that Canadians elsewhere uh, enjoy. Now, before concluding, one important uh, thing to keep in mind with this program is, uh, as you mentioned, Senator Simons, it's, it's not funded between provinces where you have Alberta, Ontario, BC writing checks for recipient provinces elsewhere. It's entirely and completely a federal program funded out of federal taxes. So it comes straight out of general revenue. So it's the same budget that we use to buy paperclips and office supplies uh, pays for equalization. And so it's a federal program um, that has existed now for quite a few years. And while it's, its design and the formula has changed over time, and there's lots of important debates to be had around uh, what tweaks we can do to the formula, that principle has existed now for, for quite some time. That principle embedded in the Constitution that we'll perhaps talk more about that says that we're committed as a country, as governments, federally and provincially, to ensuring that normal, comparable levels of public services can be delivered at normal and comparable rates of taxation. So in a nutshell, that's the equalization program. That is terrific. That is a great way to introduce uh, the panel and to introduce everybody to the, the basic concepts of equalization. Now, Mary Janigan, you're our historian, and I know from your book, The Art of Sharing, that Australia was one of the models for Canada's equalization program. Can you explain why these two federations decided they needed something like equalization in the first place? What, what problem was it designed to solve? First of all, thank you for having me, Senator. What happens is when you get into an industrializing, modernizing society, you can't rely on churches or your neighbors anymore to provide social assistance. Uh, it, there's simply not enough money and enough capacity to do so. So you need to introduce national social programs. In Australia in the 1930s, caught in the grips of the depression, it, the situation was even worse. There were tariffs up to protect the manufacturers in Eastern Australia, but the miners, the farmers in Western Australia wanted cheaper consumer goods. They were tired of paying taxes for very poor roads, bridges. They voted to secede in quite major numbers. A secession vote was then handed to the UK. Uh, the UK didn't know what to do with it. But meanwhile, Australia knew, the federal government knew it had to do something. It brought in equalization. This ensured that federal revenues, as Trevor points out, they are from the central state, but not all models in other countries do this. Germany, it's among states as well. I digressed. But 
In Australia, they arranged that federal revenues went to the poorer provinces, so that states, so that they could provide social services, they could spend it on infrastructure. It brought peace to the federation and some kind of equity. Canada couldn't get there for the longest time. We had the prairie provinces on the brink of bankruptcy. Alberta actually defaulted on its bonds in 1936. A Canadian Royal Commission came up with a proposal for equalization, a different type of approach, a different formula. It wasn't viable then. In 1956, Prime Minister Louis Saint Laurent understood he had to do something. Ottawa was collecting provincial taxes in some provinces and providing extra funds to those provinces that were poorer. Quebec was out in the cold. It wouldn't allow Ottawa to do that. Louis Saint Laurent separated any tax collection from the compensatory payments and began to deliver them in 1957 to poorer provinces. That ensured peace in the Federation, equity, and all of the provinces were able to join national social programs such as hospital care, medical care, post-secondary education, social assistance. It is a principle that keeps a federation together. It's a principle. But bearing in mind the conversation that's to come, I also note that as Trevor noted, it has a formula. If provinces are upset, Ottawa has the ability to change the formula. That remains the primary principle. Ottawa can change the pragmatic approach, but the principle of equalization, sharing amongst the poorer and richer provinces, is the only way truly to keep together a modern federation. Terrific. Thank you so much. Jared Wesley, I turn now to you. Much of your recent research as a political scientist has revolved around Alberta identity and the formation of Alberta identity. So I'm going to ask you, why does equalization make so many Albertans so angry? And how does it shape our view of ourselves as a province? Well, and thank you, Senator, for inviting me here with, with a fabulous panel to talk about all of these various aspects of equalization. And, um, you know, Trevor and Mary have teed up kind of the historical and economic side of equalization. I'd like to talk about the symbolic part of it, because this referendum at its heart is really about equalization as a symbol more than it is as a, as a program. And we know historically, Alberta political culture has been built around one particular theme, Western alienation. This idea that Western provinces and people that live there are being exploited by people in central Canada in particular, in various ways. And equalization over the years has come to symbolize that exploitation. I think also Alberta political culture has earned a reputation for being conservative. And part of that conservative brand involves I'm not saying an opposition to, but definitely a reluctance to support redistribution of wealth in general. So what we find through our research is that people that are most opposed to the concept, the principle, the inner workings of equalization are also likely to oppose 
notions of progressive taxation, where we move uh, funds from one person to another. And part of that's bound up in this sense, not among all conservatives, certainly, but among, uh, certainly among the most right-wing conservatives in this province, that, that people uh, that enjoy prosperity have done so through hard work and people uh, that don't enjoy prosperity uh, may have not worked as hard or are doing other things that are not necessarily deserving of that revenue. So a lot of people that oppose equalization oppose it on either Western alienation grounds or on, on the grounds of wealth redistribution. Now, our research, as you mentioned, has started asking uh, the questions in a little bit of a different way. We've asked uh, two sets of questions of participants over the last couple of years. The first one through focus groups asks Albertans um, how they feel that a typical Albertan uh, would behave or react to different things. And in particular, we've been asking them about equalization. How would a typical Albertan react to this, this referendum that we're, that we're seeing in the fall? And the, the results surprised us because most people say the typical Albertan doesn't stay up at night worrying about equalization. Um, so in that sense, I guess Tre Trevor, <laughs> who's fantastic research in this area, makes him an outlier <laughs> of, of sorts tracking the ins and outs of the equalization system. And, and that, that finding that the typical Albertan isn't really worried about equalization is backed up by our public opinion research, where we do surveys that show that most Albertans are relatively indifferent to elements of fiscal federalism, whether that's because they don't understand them or whether because they prioritize other issues like economic development, um, healthcare, and most recently the COVID-19 pandemic. So as a principle, as a, as a symbol of Alberta's, um, Albertans' opposition to, to wealth redistribution and to exploitation by Eastern Canada, I think we're starting to see a thawing in Albertans' attitudes towards equalization. Of course, it will, we'll find out, I suppose, this fall uh, when we see how many people turn out to take a ballot uh, and then how many people actually oppose uh, uh, the notion of equalization being embedded in the Constitution. And that is the perfect segue to my next question for Professor Eric Adams. Equalization is literally written into the Constitution. So can you, as a constitutional law expert, explain why it's there and whether the referendum question Albertans will see when they get to the polls this October will have any impact on the Constitution? Well, thanks, Senator Simons. And thanks, too, to my uh, co-panelists. Uh, it's been a treat to be uh, just listening already to the comments uh, made. Um, I think it's important to start by noting that um, what everyone has already referred to, which is the principle of equalization is distinct from the particular formula that may be used to determine how much money in the federal program is taken from which taxpayers and given to redistribute it to a particular province. So there's a distinction between the principle on the one hand, the idea to quote Mary, you know, the art of sharing, the principle of sharing across the Federation, that's the principle. The actual practice of how that may look in, in, uh, in what money and how much money is taken and, and how is it distributed, that's the, that's the mechanism. And what our, what our constitution protects in section 36.2 is the principle of equalization. It commits Canada as part of the supreme law of Canada to maintaining the principle of equalization, the art of sharing. And that is the referendum question that Albertans are being asked. Would we like to get rid of, not the formula, not the mechanism, would we like there to be changes in how or what is distributed and in what ways no. 
Albertans are being asked, would we like to get rid of the principle of sharing in the Federation? And that's a very important point, I think, that Albertans need to think seriously about. There can be all kinds of reasons and all kinds of, I think, differences of opinion about whether the formula should be revised. And periodically, of course, I think we can probably agree that it needs to be reviewed and revised on occasion as the economic uh, um, aspects of our federation change. But do we want to give up on the principle of sharing across the federation? Because that's the question we're being asked. Why is it in the Constitution? It's in the Constitution because in 1982, Canadian parliamentarians said Canada needs a constitutional renewal. And most Canadians are going to be familiar with one part of that renewal, the addition of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. But there were other important aspects that arrived in 1982, the amending formula, which told you how the Constitution could be changed. Indigenous rights and treaty rights were added to our Supreme Law of Canada. The provincial jurisdiction over natural resource development added in Section 92A in 1982, and so was equalization as a principle. It was a practice that already existed in Canadian government uh, uh, fiscal federalism. But in 1982, Canadian parliamentarians said, let's turn that practice into firmer constitutional stuff, because it's important to how this country can work as a nation. Now, the last part of your question, Senator Simons, a referendum. What role does that have in changing this thing that we call the Supreme Law of Canada? Well, it has no formal or independent role. A referendum, a referenda, and the Supreme Court has clarified this, does nothing in terms of changing the constitutional law of the country. Of course, any province has the power to initiate and request any kind of constitutional amendment they may like. And that's just part of being part of a democracy. We want that to be the case. Constitutions aren't perfect. Maybe they need changing. A province can initiate constitutional change, but it is a collective document signaling a collective enterprise, this thing we called Canada. So no one individual province can change the collective aspects of our Supreme Law of Canada and that frankly just makes sense. So if you want to amend this thing, you've got to get broad provincial and federal support across virtually all of the major provinces of the country. What does Alberta say? Well, a referendum will create a political fact that Albertans are against the principle of equalization. Maybe it will, or maybe we won't, maybe it won't, but the referendum itself about that principle has nothing really tangible to say about whether or not our constitution, in fact, will be changed. Okay. Ken Bosenkuhl. Back in 2001, when Ralph Klein was premier and Jean Chrétien was prime minister, you were one of the original authors of the firewall letter, which uh, laid out a path for Alberta to sort of wall itself off to an extent from the rest of Canada. And you've been writing about equalization for years. So what problems do you see with the program? And do you think this referendum is the best strategy to address them? Well, thank you, Senator, for inviting me here. Uh, your journalistic uh, hues are showing in that complicated question. So let me... <laughs> let me I know, journalists uh, are supposed to ask simple, straightforward <laughs> questions. I think I'm turning into a politician. <laughs> uh, 
I'm not sure. Um, so let me let me just unpack a few things there. Uh, first thing I'd like to say is that when Stephen Harper put a few of us around the table to craft what has become known as the firewall letter, one of the most important instructions he gave us was he wanted us to do things and put things in that letter that Alberta could do unilaterally. He didn't want things in that letter that relied on other parts of the country to do things. And as a result, equalization does not make an appearance in the original firewall letter because every one of those things we wanted, he wanted in particular, uh, Alberta to be able to do on its own. And most of those uh, things that were in that letter, those five things in that letter, were things we could do on our own. So I just wanted to set that, that initial groundwork. Next, you asked me what are the problems with, with equalization. Uh, Tom Corshane was my mentor for many years on these matters, and Tom always said to me, the root of every problem with equalization is natural resources and natural resource revenues. And every time there's been big swings in natural resources, and guess where that mostly comes from, the province of Alberta, that creates enormous strains on the program. And so the question of how to treat natural resources in equalization has been probably the biggest challenge with equalization. And, and I think the fundamental problem here is that revenues from natural resources are not like revenues from other tax sources. Revenues from natural resources are more like, uh, are more like a capital asset and the income from a capital asset as opposed to income that you charge. And in my view, equalization should account for revenues that are ongoing as opposed to one-time revenues, which are revenues from natural resources. So I've argued in the past that natural resource revenue should be excluded from equalization. Well, that creates all kinds of tension because Alberta suddenly has all this money and the rest of the country looks at us and say, hey, how come they get all this money and how come we don't? And then you get into the ownership of natural resources. So uh, there's a lot there, and I can talk more about that, but I think that's the, that's the one big problem, uh, challenge with equalization from a technical point of view. The second challenge that I have identified over the years is what I call the math in, math out problem. And I think equalization can receive its most uh, political support across the country. And I'm a big supporter of equalization. I can get into that if you like, even as a conservative, even as a conservative Albertan. Um, it gets political support if people know that no one is tinkering with the program. If the program is is you have a bunch of inputs and then weird wonky people like, or not weird, uh, wonderful wonky people like Trevor can calculate all those inputs and produce an output. And what's happened in the last number of years and where a lot of these tensions come in, we put floors and ceilings and we put various uh, different aspects into it, which makes the program over time unpredictable. And so I've often argued that we need a, we need a what I call a math in, math out. It needs to be a mathematical formula, uh, free from tinkering. And over time, it needs to be as stable as possible, recognizing my first problem, which is natural resources cause these problems. So that's, that's the second thing that I spent a lot of time writing about. The third thing, uh, so those are two top-down views of equalization, so if you will, sort of Ottawa views. The third thing that I've spent a little bit of time looking at are the incentives of equalization. What does a recipient province, do they act differently, knowing that if they tax different things within their tax mix differently, that will affect how much money they get from Ottawa? And again, this is a, a fairly technical area of, of literature, but I think there are some, there is some evidence that provinces who receive equalization 
as a result even of a math in and math out formula, will adjust some of their behaviors to account for the fact that they get equalization if their certain revenues go down, they get they get compensated from Ottawa, so they have a bit of an incentive to keep those revenues down and et cetera, et cetera. And it, it works better for bigger provinces than smaller provinces. And again, I could talk for hours on that. But those are the three, those are the three main things uh, when I was in the sort of more wonky parts of my career that I have written a number of things about. Your last question was, your last question I find the most difficult because you asked me, will the referendum deal with any of these things? And I have a few answers to that. My first answer is, I have no idea what this referendum is actually asking Albertans because the technical uh, word by word referendum question is asking us to remove something out of the constitution. And as Eric uh, has just told us, that's not something Alberta can do. Yeah. And I go back to what I started with. We would never have put this in the original firewall letter because we wanted to have things Alberta could do unilaterally. The second thing is, is when the premier talks about this referendum, he talks about a broader set of issues that are not actually reflected in the referendum. He wants to talk about sharing across the country. And that's a great conversation to have. I've been writing about some of those things as well. But that's not actually what the question is asking. And uh, the third thing is, is that the referendum question doesn't address any of what I call problems and challenges with the, with the, with the actual formula about equalization. So... Uh, I have to lean back on what I've been saying for many years, and I'm going to steal a little bit of Jared's or say something maybe different, but in, in Jared's field, which is, in my view, there's a difference in the conversation in Alberta between what I call the big E equalization conversation, which is actually about the equalization program and the small E equalization program, which is a conversation about the relative sharing uh, and how Alberta's place and how that all fits in. And so I think, I think, Politicians in, in Alberta for many, many years have exploited this, what I call misunderstanding between the big E equalization and the small E equalization. And I think, uh, I think the current leadership is doing the same. And um, I think there's going to be a lot of confusion. I, I, there's a lot of confusion that I, can, I don't actually think can be cleared up because the actual question, what the government says they want from the question are actually two very different things. And I think it reflects the small E and big E equalization difference. So um, uh, as I've written and will continue to write, this is probably the most uh, mysterious political strategy I have ever seen uh, from a government I'm largely sympathetic to. And I think this equalization referendum will be a, will be a bad thing for Alberta, a bad thing for Jason Kenney. And uh, I wish he would just cancel it. Okay, then. Uh, I, I'm, glad that, I'm glad that you're feeling able to speak freely here in our forum. It's very good. So, Tre so Trevor, I think Ken's given us a really good segue. Um, you know, people talk about fiscal capacity and whether or not Alberta is using its full fiscal capacity. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about that and to whether, you know, you think the current system is fair to Albertans. Because I think, I think deep down, a lot of Albertans still feel like somehow they are paying for the policy, expensive policy choices of other provinces. Sure. So to the first question there about whether Alberta is using its fiscal capacity, well, if we think about, as the formula does, fiscal capacity as the amount you could raise at average taxes, then no, Alberta has below average tax rates and so is raising 
uh, less. But that's okay. The, the purpose of equalization is not for the federal government to dictate provincial policy choices. It is designed in a way to allow for, for that autonomy. And Albertans, British Columbians, Ontarians, uh, Quebecois resident, like everyone can choose uh, their provincial policies that they think suits them. And if a province wants low tax rates, they can compensate with, in Alberta's case, hopefully high resource revenues to compensate uh, or lower levels of spending. And those are policy choices that uh, reasonable people can disagree on and discuss uh, provincially. And equalization really doesn't try and tilt the scales uh, on that either way. Uh, but, but to this broader question of how is the, the principle implemented, the specifics of the formula uh, that Ken was referring to, I, I completely agree that there are some real shortcomings with the, the current formula. And just let me dial the clock back to about 2007 when the formula that we have today was, uh, sorry, largely have today was originally implemented. It was uh, a formula really designed by uh, a panel of experts that was pulled together by former Prime Minister uh, Paul Martin, Liberal Prime Minister. Uh, then the panel did its work, chaired by uh, a really amazing Albertan, uh, deep expertise in fiscal and economic matters, Al O'Brien. Uh, they did their work following the federal election that was kind of right in the middle of when they were doing their work. They reported to the then conservative uh, Prime Minister Stephen Harper what their recommendations were um, that the, uh, the government at the time largely adopted. And this was a formula that, uh, to Ken's point, was really looking at objectively, as objectively as, as one can, what do the inputs mean for payments that each province uh, gets? Natural resources has always been an incredibly difficult issue for the formula, and there's no way around these difficulties. We've been wrestling this uh, with this issue since the formula was created. Uh, Diefenbaker initially put it in there, a Western conservative prime minister, and then uh, Pearson campaigned uh, against the inclusion of natural resources. So there's always been a good back and forth here, and the panel recommended 50% of natural resources being included, not for any objective reason other than there's good arguments to exclude all of it, and there's good arguments to include all of it. So they they went with 50% as a, well, what are you going to do? This is a compromise? Yeah, and a, the government- a, You know, that's, a, that's a, what I call a Tevye the milkman decision on the one hand, on the other hand. And so the government adopted that, and, and we did change the formula during the financial crisis in a way that's not working quite well for us today. Uh, and I don't want to fault a, a government for making choices during a crisis based on the expediency of, of the moment. But now, you know, we have some, some time since then. And one of the key problems with the formula today is that we fix the number of dollars that it pays out. So the size of the program actually has nothing to do with the amount of inequality that exists uh, across the country. And, and that really does undermine the purpose uh, of the program. And so that's a really big thing to think about, especially post-COVID, where it looks like we might be in a situation where inequality is quite a bit lower, actually, than it has been in many, many decades. And so we do need to think about potential reforms to that program there. But finally, I guess to the point of whether it's fair to Alberta uh, or not, well, 
there can be disagreement about the very idea of redistribution completely. And that's, that's fair enough. And so people can view it as unfair in principle uh, for that reason uh, alone. But in terms of it not paying out to Alberta, despite the challenging recession that we went through, I'm skeptical of that as being a legitimate grounds to say that the program is unfair. So we went into our recession in 2015-16, the highest income province in the country by a wide margin. And coming out right at the bottom of the recession, we were still the highest yeah. income, strongest economy province. So the gap has certainly shrunk uh, quite a bit, but we remain in that um, top spot in terms of per capita economic activity. And so the program, whatever tweak you might have in mind, it's just not going to pay out to Alberta despite that recession. So our economic challenges, our deficit uh, that we have right now, it's largely a choice, a consequence of provincial policy choices of, of rather taxation. than something yeah. equalization can deal with. So I'm curious, Mary, the, the subtitle of your book, I'm going to, I'm going to hold it up again. I'm, I, I'm not getting paid to show Mary's book. It's just, it's a very good book. Um, the subtitle is the richer versus the poorer provinces since confederation. And I'm, you know, versus implies, uh, you know, that there is conflict. And I'm wondering if you think that that conflict is baked into the formula and, and to the nature of equalization. Are there always going to be uh, clashes between richer and poorer provinces? Well, it came from even before Confederation, when the provinces were squabbling about the subsidies. And the maritime provinces feared that with Confederation, they would lose revenues, and they would lose influence, and they wouldn't survive. And Ottawa, the federal negotiators, did not want to admit that all provinces were not equal. So they played around behind the scenes with the subsidies, pretending there were more people in the Maritimes so they could add more per capita subsidies. <laughs> it, it was a deception, a self-deception, but it also kept every province in the Federation. As the decades went by, you can trace it. The richer provinces, the wealthier and the the membership in that club changed over time. The wealthier provinces were always unwilling to admit that the poorer provinces needed more help. Occasionally, there would be breakthroughs and extra grants would be given and Ottawa would siphon off more money for struggling provinces. But the principles seem to be intact. All provinces are equal, no matter how inequitous that was. So you always have the richer against the poor struggling into the 20th century. Now suddenly each government has to do more. And people, people should move for jobs, but people shouldn't be moving because one province has a better education system or health system, uh, specific cases exempted. There should be a way to make sure that services are roughly comparable without massive taxation. It took the breakthrough of 1956 with Louis Sandroff to resolve that. All provinces were not equal, inequity would be addressed. But you know, Louis Sandroff paid a price for that. Ontario was furious because it felt that Ottawa was giving too much money to the poorer provinces. 
the Maritimes were feeling, and it's true at the beginning, there wasn't quite enough funding for them to provide social services at, at the same standard, but they got there and Diefenbaker filled in those gaps. Saint one of the reasons he was defeated, given a minority, uh, Diefenbaker getting a minority government was because of equalization and the various scuffles there between richer and poorer. And you know, you can see it today too, richer versus poor, it's still there. And it's an underlying theme of confederation. The problem is, is not to make Canadians feel they are being unjustly treated by their governments, that they're being ripped off in some way. It's fair to discuss, as we've all been saying, the pragmatism of the formula. But if we start attacking the principle massively, and just throwing it out in the referendum, I think we're going to be in a lot of trouble as a nation, as a federation. I worry about this. Thus concludes the first half of our debate about equalization. You've been listening to the thoughts of U of C economist Trevor Toome, journalist turned historian Mary Janigan, political science professor Jared Wesley, and his University of Alberta colleague Eric Adams, a professor of constitutional law, and longtime conservative strategist and McGill academic Ken Bosenhol. My thanks to my Senate staffers Dina Dong, who produced our panel, and Ame Charnelia, who turned it into this podcast. I hope you're excited for the second episode of our Equalization series. I'll hope to see you there. Meantime, I'm Paula Simons, Independent Senator from Alberta. Thank you, merci, and hi hi. <laughs>